Agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. We'll be presenting a series of interviews through 2022 with federal executives from civilian and defense agencies in a new podcast series, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Today my guest is Captain Pete Small, Program Manager for Unmanned Maritime Systems. Our topic is the Navy's aims and strategies for vessels without crews or without crews on board. Captain Small, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Well, give us the big picture. Let's start there with what the Navy envisions in the future for these unmanned, uncrewed types of systems and maybe give us a range of what the systems look like. Sure. Uh, Just a little bit of background. The Navy's plans and desire for unmanned systems flows out of the hierarchy of strategy that's initiated with the DOD's national defense strategy. Uh, And early on in 2018, that identified the the need for advanced autonomous systems to gain competitive military advantages in a new era of great power competition with near-peer competitors. As early as 2018, the idea of autonomous systems bringing needed capability was introduced. Since then, the Navy has developed, uh, with the Marine Corps and Coast Guard, has developed a tri-service maritime strategy called Advantage at Sea. And important themes of a larger and more distributed naval force are introduced in there. Kind of by definition, that larger and more distributed force in a budget-constrained environment needs to have more smaller and affordable and potentially autonomous and unmanned systems to create that capacity and the distribution. So there have been a number of more uh, finely developed strategy documents since then, including the Chief of Naval Operations Navigation Plan, and it talks of a future hybrid fleet again, a larger fleet and hybrid implying manned and unmanned working together. So again, uh, we've established the need for autonomous systems, but they're really an extension of the manned fleet to augment the capability and the capacity and the lethality, importantly, of that fleet. So we've then developed, you know, a portfolio of prototypes and systems to really start to meet that demand signal. So you've really got a couple of challenges here then. One is what is the doctrine and operating principles, the concepts of operations for all of this to work together in a reliable way. But then you've also got the technological need to develop the systems that do what you hope them to do. Fair way to put it? That is fair. And the two are related because an often question that we go around in circles with is, you know, well, from a a doctrine and concept of operation perspective, what do you want these systems to do? Uh, But then from the technology perspective, there's a question of, well, how much can they do? And what technology should we assume when we develop the concepts of operations and plans for these vessels? Uh, So we're working that concurrently because we have to. And uh, our prototyping efforts that uh, I'll hopefully go into in more detail here coming up are, are really informing the answers to both of those questions. And just a side question, there is a lot of commercial work going on in fishing and other commercial uses of the seas in which some companies have launched and designed uncrewed vessels. Is any of that able to inform what the Navy does? Uh, Yes. I mean, 
for one thing, I'll make a distinction. Let's not uh, lose sight of the fact that we, the Navy wants uncrewed and autonomous systems for military purposes. Uh, so to some extent, the commercial applications of autonomous technology are not going to get us all of the way there. So there will be military unique missions and requirements that come into play. But there is, from a technology perspective, a lot of benefit that we can get from a broader uh, interest and investment in unmanned systems, including just things like the reliability of the systems and uh, the perception and autonomy installed. Uh, all of that is beneficial to the overall development of reliable autonomous systems. So yeah, we're paying close attention to uh, increasing developments in the commercial side. And as you prototype, what are some of the experiments and scientific lookings going on looking like? I imagine there's a lot of aspects to these things. Is the basic hull size and shape, power system is a big part of it, then as you say, lethality, what will it carry that can shoot and kill? And then there's the whole communications piece. So a lot of interactive parts. What are you looking at and what are some of the prototypes? Let's talk about that right now. Sure. So first, let me just say that, you know, there's always a balance between experimentation uh, and looking at concepts of operations and technology development, which is advancing uh, the state of the technology in support of those concepts of operation, somewhat as I've laid out before. So we're, as a Navy, are working on both of those. And so we have uh, industry partners helping us with the technology efforts, and we have Navy sailors and fleet partners working with us on the experimentation efforts. So uh, we're working both of those simultaneously, as I said. From a prototyping effort, um, I have a portfolio of systems both on the surface and undersea, so unmanned surface vessels and unmanned undersea vessels. There are other Navy organizations that are uh, well on their way to developing unmanned aerial systems as well. Uh, that's just not in my portfolio, and that would be uh, another interview. But from an unmanned surface vessel perspective, we describe them in size ranges, but they all have discrete capabilities and intentions. Uh, you know, the reason we need different sizes is for different missions. Uh, but on a, for a small unmanned surface vessel, which is generally about 12 meters or 40 feet in length or less, uh, we're well on a path to field small USVs for mine countermeasures missions. So mine sweeping and mine hunting that has traditionally been done by manned platforms, which is obviously very dangerous working in an active minefield, uh, we're well down path on replacing those manned systems with small unmanned surface vessels towing, sweeping, and mine hunting payloads. Moving up in size, we describe a medium USV, which uh, gets up to about 500 tons and maybe 200 feet in length. But we envision a medium USV as a distributed sensor. It really is a truck deploying a variety of sensor systems to get the more distributed uh, sensor nodes out uh, further away from the manned uh, assets and to, so to expand the view and also to uh, accept more risk in certain situations. Uh, so we have a number of prototype medium USVs that we're working with, but Sea Hunter and Seahawk are uh, the names of two prototypes that are doing a lot of good work in this area. And let me just ask and, you a quick question about those uh, sure. before we move on. Do you envision those being part of a group connected to, say, a battle group, or are they totally on their own, and whoever wants to avail themselves of what they generate in data can do so. Sure. So in, let me speak in general terms at first. Uh, you know, earlier on, cer certainly it's, I'll say, less technically challenging to develop systems that are employed 
um, closer in to the manned force. But that's an important distinction uh, and maybe one that is unique from the traditional unmanned aerial systems we've seen over the last several decades is that most of all of our unmanned surface and undersea vessels are intended to be remotely commanded and controlled from afloat assets. And I said that very carefully because uh, they are not intended to be remotely piloted in that all of these systems are intended and must have some certain level of mission autonomy to be able to navigate and operate on their own. But the command and control of those platforms and the missions that they're going to do will be from a float-based command and control station. So think of a manned warship in control of some unmanned surface vessels that it can again extend uh, the, the sensory reach of the, that manned force and also potentially you know, more distributed and more risk tolerant. And certainly as we gain experience and trust in those autonomous systems, that risk tolerance and the capability to move them further away from the manned force that is exercising the command and control will increase. But earlier on, you know, they will be working more closely with the manned control centers. And, and my example was a surface ship, but it could have also been a submarine commanding and controlling unmanned undersea vessels as well. Okay, understood. The idea of controlling it from an afloat asset is a big deal. That is to say, not from land. Right. We're a blue water Navy, and all of the concepts of operation involve forces far forward. Uh, and And those forces are afloat forces. So that's how it has to work for us. All right. That was uh, the middle-sized types up to 500 tons, 200 feet. What's Is there something larger than that under the uh, experimental portfolio? Yeah, so the Navy envisions a large USV as part of its future surface combatant force. So the surface Navy has an architecture uh, for all of their man, all of their warships, manned and unmanned, and the medium USV and the large USV are part of that future architect. So a large USV is larger than a medium USV, and it, the only reason it's larger is because it has to carry a larger payload. So a large USV is envisioned up to upwards of 2,000 tons and, and greater than 200 feet and would be an adjunct magazine, again, with the thought that the Navy needs more capacity and it needs more distributed capacity in the future fight that is highlighted in the national defense strategy against our near-peer competitors. Uh, So we just need more capacity, we need a more affordable capacity, and we need to change uh, the risk posture and also the targeting and the launching opportunities in theater. A large USV uh, with more capacity brings a lot more options to the surface force on how to distribute their fires and how to manage risk in a very challenging battle space moving forward. So that's the idea of a large USV, and we have some what we call overlord prototypes which are not necessarily sized as big as we envision a large USV in the future, but are working all of the capability and technology development to prove the systems required for a future large USV. Because some of the projectiles envisioned for the future take a large amount of electrical power generation as opposed to, say, firing conventionally fueled rockets and so on and missiles. So is one of the considerations for these adjunct magazine large size vessels that they could 
concentrate all the power they have on that particular mission need, firing electrically driven projectiles and therefore saving a lot of the power requirements on manned ships for the other purposes that they serve. Yeah, so certainly um, that you can envision a variety of large payloads, but you have it right. We, we have a large USV because the payload itself is large or the um, what we call the swap, the size, weight, and power requirements to employ that payload are large, and a larger vessel can bring that uh, power and space and real estate to employ that. So certainly in the future, uh, you could have energy-type systems on a, on a large USV for sure. But again, in the concept of operations, when you have um, the the capacity of the large USV, you can, as you hinted, somewhat uh, reserve or preserve the capacity that's in the man system for whatever you want to do with that. So again, you have more options with the added capacity brought by unmanned surface vessels with the future force working together. Because in some respects, they're analogous to unmanned aircraft, where you don't have to keep a person alive inside an aircraft that strips away a lot of material that can be used for other purposes in the unmanned version. That's correct. Some of the the systems required for um, personnel accommodations can be significantly pared back, if not eliminated altogether. Uh, I will say that these manned vessels, there are events that, you know, we're not going to have fully unmanned. So getting them underway from the pier, for instance, we still envision a manned crew would get them under the underway from the pier and get them out past the sea buoy. Uh, and then we might be able to remove the crew uh, for a transit or a mission. Uh, but then there are other events like refueling and anchoring and emergent repairs and things that we would need to put humans back on board to manage just because we can't advance the technology to completely remove personnel from all of the interactions associated with operating a vessel at sea. Uh, So there will always be that interaction of humans with the systems uh, required, and so we have to take that account in the design. Um, And I will also just say, uh, as I should have said before, uh, we do plan for reliable command and control of these systems. So in the scenarios where we were talking about having offensive fires or offensive capabilities of an unmanned surface vessel, all of that is done under remote human command and control. We are not talking about autonomous weapon systems that have free reign to to do as they please. Uh, This is under direct human supervision remotely. Got it. But they'll still have a joystick on board for that close-in parking and docking. Exactly. We are speaking with Navy Captain Pete Small, Program Manager for Unmanned Maritime Systems. We'll return with more after this short break. I'm Tom Temin. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit noblis.org to learn more. Welcome back to Powering Up the Mission with Science and Technology. My guest is Navy Captain Pete Small, Program Manager for Unmanned Maritime Systems. 
What are some of the challenges in engineering there to get these things operational? Is it the power, the propulsion systems? What are what are you facing as the main engineering and applicable scientific requirements? That's a great question, and we certainly are focused on, again, developing reliable autonomous systems to meet these missions. So we've gotten that broken down into really five technology areas, the first of which is reliable hull mechanical and electrical systems. Uh, so just think, you know, the power generators and the engines and the lubrication systems and the propulsion systems all need to operate even more reliably than a manned vessel that has humans to monitor and, and make correct, take corrective actions when they see indications of a pending failure. All that has to be uh, reliable for an unmanned operation. And then the operation of those systems has to be integrated with, to some extent, with the mission autonomy. So the, the autonomy of the vessel needs to be able to you know, adjust the engine speeds and turn the rudders and things like that. But then there's also with the command and control network such that the, the remote human operators have a sense for what's going on. So uh, that's the challenge and we're very focused on that and working on it. The second technology area is the communication circuits to do that remote command and control, as I said. So think networks and, and radios on board uh, to provide that reliable and assured connectivity to the human uh, overwatch such that we can replan the mission or if there's an indication of uh, something wrong or a failure, we can take corrective action and we can also execute the command and control required for the actual mission that employs any, any specific payloads. So just having reliable networks and radios and connectivities is, is very important and we're focused on that as well. And does that component also include the element of encryption? Because if you're having communications between the afloat controller of that unmanned device, then you don't want anyone picking up or intercepting the communications that might even be over the horizon. It absolutely does. It's great. It's a great point. Uh, we want the radios and networks, and by definition, the radios and networks have to be interoperable with the systems that we're already employ employing on the manned ships today. So those are secure and encrypted systems. So just to work and be interoperable, uh, we have to have that level of encryption and secure communications on the unmanned vessel. But then because the vessel is unmanned also brings another layer of scrutiny to the crypto, you know, keeping those secure in the event the vessel is lost or we need to have the right cryptography on board to, uh, to control the information and the equipment that's on board. So that's absolutely a concern. And as people see these things, will they look like conventional vessels, only just no portholes or something? Or are you looking at whole new designs so early on, we're certainly looking to adopt manned vessels. We're starting with a commercial baseline in, in a lot of areas, and we're doing that uh, because we need them to be affordable and we need them to be understood and buildable by our industry partners. Uh, so for the most part, they're going to look like some derivative of either a commercial or a military vessel or some something closely related. Uh, but certainly as time goes on and we understand uh, what the design aspects of a truly unmanned systems are, you know, we may see that change over time. And are you looking at ways to make them have longer intervals, say, needed than conventional vessels in maintenance and rebuild? Because that's a gigantic activity of the Navy and there's, you know, limited place and time to be able to overhaul the vessels you have now. 
Yes, for sure. We're, we're focused on that as well. Um, certainly just to operate unmanned for a meaningful period of time in the scenarios we've described already, uh, without a more regular human overwatch and intervention, uh, we have to operate uh, for extended periods of time. And earlier I made an analogy with the Air Force with its thoughts and you know experiments of uncrewed aircraft, but there's a big difference and that is culturally, say, in some place like the Air Force, and I won't ask you to comment on the Air Force, but there's a little bit of dichotomy between the flyboys and the people that may sit with a joystick in an easy chair operating a drone. But in this case, the people operating these will be afloat sailors on the open blue seas. So it sounds like perhaps some of the cultural resistance you might get to the unmanned platform really won't happen in the Navy. That's a really great observation and an important point. Uh, and, and my experience has been exactly that, is that we, we don't have a cultural problem with the adoption of unmanned systems. It's quite the opposite, actually. Our, the, the surface Navy sailors and the undersea Navy sailors are demanding unmanned systems, and they have a desire for them because they, they see the potential. Um, and uh, and they want to have more, and they want to have more capability and capacity, and all those things I talked about before. So we hear the demand signal from the surface Navy. They're, they're not a threat. Again, the intent is to build a, a larger Navy fleet, not replace manned. You know, we have a, a relatively, well, depending on your perspective, you could say it's large or you could say it's not so large, but we have fairly high-end, expensive, and very capable manned systems. The intent is not to get rid of those and replace them with unmanned systems. The intent is to augment them with these unmanned systems so that they have more capacity and distribution and capability and all those things we've talked about. So they want the unmanned systems, and they're sending that demand signal to us for sure. And a couple of practical questions, and this relates to training, I guess, and also operational doctrine. But often naval ships are operating in the proximity of commercial vessels, fishing vessels, these giant cargo vessels in and among the different ports of the world. What are some of the considerations for unmanned vessels, uncrewed vessels, operating remotely among traffic? Yeah, so there's different operational scenarios. So certainly, you know, getting them underway in busy commercial ports will have to be, um, you know, cautious and careful and might require increased levels of oversight and manpower to get the fleet of unmanned surface vessels out of port and into the open ocean. Uh, but once you're into the open ocean, the contact density goes way down and you may not need as much supervision and, and you may rely more on the autonomy and the sensory perception of the unmanned systems to operate safely. And, and we're proving that out. And then certainly far forward, when you're in the war fighting scenario, the the risk calculus changes again when the bullets are flying and you're employing the unmanned systems um, as intended, uh, you're less concerned about, you know, some of those um, peacetime aspects that, that you are worried about in different phases of the operation. So there's really not a one-size-fits-all answer to, to this question. We're going to have to have different levels of oversight and different um, operational constructs depending on the, the current demands of the environment. But certainly I'll just touch back to what you mentioned earlier about, you know, fishing and more commercial adaptation. So there's a larger, you know, there's a larger international effort looking at the impact of unmanned vessels on the high seas. 
there's groups, you know, international groups talking about any um, changes to the international laws or changes to identification systems to identify an unmanned vessel. Um, and so there's a broader scope of work well beyond the Navy um, that's going on that will continue to inform what the future for all of us looks like as more unmanned systems take to the seas. And here's a question just coming from my imagination, but we've seen this type of thing happen uh, in the Cold War era. Knowing that there is no crew aboard on the open seas, what if Russia came along or Iran or something and decided to just scoop one up, figuring, well, we're not going to have to kill any American sailors, but we've got a really important asset Will these things have kind of a self-destruct capability built in? Uh, so that's a, a real legitimate concern. Um, but certainly, again, the operation of the vessels and where they are with relation to manned force that can provide oversight and protection is certainly germane to that discussion. So, you know, that wouldn't happen if, they're, if the vessels are operating in proximity with a manned force that's providing protection. Even in the scenario where uh, they find one alone and want to get on board, it's not nearly as easy as one would think. Anyone who's tried to do a uh, personnel transfer on the open ocean between two manned vessels know that that's already a challenging uh, maneuver. And there's pretty straightforward just maneuvering behaviors you can program into a vessel that will largely prevent it from being boarded. Imagine trying to board a vessel that's going as fast as it can in circles or um, swerving back and forth wildly um, or just going as fast as it can and running away and you have to catch up with it. So there's certainly pretty straightforward things you can do to prevent it from being boarded. And then uh, even in the case where it does get boarded, there's, um, you know, measures you can take to protect the information and systems on board, whether they be via, you know, cryptographic means, as, as discussed earlier, or, you know, worst case scenario, self-destruct, like you say. Um, so there's really a range of options to deal with that threat. And uh, people always focus on it, and it's important, and, and it should be focused on. But I think... Uh, the opportunities, there's a wide variety of opportunities to deal with that. I imagine that boarding operation or attempt would be fun to watch remotely on your high-definition screen <laughs> if you're tossing <laughs> the other guys into the sea one by one. And just to wrap it all up then, uh, you were discussing the top five engineering and scientific challenges for these. Let's get back to the rest of the list. Yeah, so I, I outlaid uh, some of them earlier with the, rely, you know, People always ask, um, and this is a version of that question, what is the hardest part or what's the most important part? And the, the standard answer I have to give them is all of the technology areas that we need for reliable autonomous systems are equally important because if any one of them doesn't work uh, or is a weak link, then really the whole concept falls apart. We could have the most reliable engineering systems on board, but if we don't have good solid connectivity to it, we won't be able to employ it as an example. But I did highlight the, the engineering system's reliability, the command and control, uh, the payloads. We want to employ uh, meaningful payloads. Again, these, these are for warfighting missions in support of our, our national interests. So uh, the payloads that we want uh, on board have to be meaningful and interoperable, and, and testing and demonstrating and integrating those uh, is important and, uh, and challenging. Uh, the command and control software interface, the human-machine interface, if you will. Uh, what is the remote operator that's on board the, the destroyer seeing? What information do they have that's getting sent back from the unmanned surface vessel? And, and 
how you know then what options do they have to to change its operation and behavior that's very important as well and then finally the kind of the crown jewels and and one we focus on most is this the awareness of the vessel itself which has to do with the sensors on board and then the um, true mission autonomy you know how smart is the vessel to take in that sensory information about what its what its surroundings are that might be from radar or sonar and undersea vessel uh, perspective and, and and fusing sensory inputs together and then acting on those inputs you know knowing what to do and taking commands and control from the remote operator but then also having mission level autonomy on board to say look it's not going as planned i need to replan it um, in an autonomous way to try to accomplish that mission uh, so developing all of those things is important and having them work together uh, in a reliable way is what we're going to need for uh, employment of these systems as laid out in the strategy that I that I started off the conversation with. Captain Pete Small is Program Manager for Unmanned Maritime Systems in the Navy. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. To hear this interview again or share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Noblis. I'm Tom Temin. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Powering Up the Mission with Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network.